Our Father, that passage itself such a balm and a comfort to our hearts. We need something, someone, exalted, supreme, preeminent, authoritative, sure, secure. And he has come. What a savior. He has come. We come to worship. We come to worship this Christmas season with familiar thoughts on our minds. Children come with wonder, excitement, anticipation for things that they have not seen and heard before. Those of us who are adults and who are older come perhaps lazily, perhaps with apathy, for we have seen and heard the story of Christmas dozens and hundreds of times. But there is a wonder here that God has come. There is a wonder here over the one who has come as the eternal God-man. There is wonder here over what the God-man has done. Would you, by these truths which we already know, and these truths of which we need reminding, and these truths which will be our infinite delight and eternal delight, might you provoke us and lead us to worship this morning. For we need to worship. Our hearts long to worship. Our hearts delight in anticipation of worship. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The truck driver was making his way across town one morning and he was observed by some people, one of whom began to follow him as he made his way across town because this truck driver was behaving erratically, shall we say. Every time he would come to a stop sign or a stoplight, he would jump out of his truck with a baseball bat in hand, run around the truck, beating the sides of the truck with the bat, jump back in the truck and take off. Now, when he did it one time, that was interesting. When he did it two times, it was puzzling. When he did it more than three times, one passenger, one vehicle driver said, I've got to figure out what's going on. Finally, the truck driver pulled into a restaurant and he repeated his act, jumped out of the truck, baseball bat in hand, ran around the truck, beating the side of the truck with the bat. The driver of the other car pulled up next to him, got out of his car and said, Friend, I've just got to ask you, what is wrong? Why are you beating the side of your truck every time you stop? Oh, the man said, it's really quite simple. I have a two-ton truck, and I have a load of four tons of canaries, and I need to keep two tons in the air at all times. In 2020... We understand that sentiment, don't we? We feel like we've been overwhelmed with two tons of canaries just too much. It's been a tough year, hasn't it? You feel like you've got to keep things in the air and keep things going, and it's hard to keep things going. It's been a year of disappointment, hardship, suffering, loss, disagreements, questions, anger, just to name a few things that have happened this year. At the end of every year, we need something of a reset. So some of you perhaps are already thinking about January 1 and thinking about what will life in 2021 look like? What are some things that I want to make my goals and objectives for the year in 2021? What do I want to do? We need a reset. We need something to refocus our minds and our hearts around righteous 
and true realities. That's always true. Seems to me in 2020, as we head into 21, that's really true. And that is one reason why Christmas this year is such a grace to us. It's a kind reminder from the Lord that there is only one around whom our lives can be reset. There's only one who is worthy of worship. There's only one who is worthy of our satisfaction, our joy, and our delight. And it is the Christ child. Over three messages, a couple of Sundays and Christmas Eve, I want to take you to a passage that you perhaps might not think of as being a Christmas passage. Revelation chapter 1. And begin thinking with you about our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to start that this morning by looking at verses 4 to 6. And in these verses, what we will find is this. Delight in Christ because of His infinite uniqueness. Delight in Jesus Christ because of His eternal nature, His infinite power, His ultimate authority. Delight in Jesus Christ. Make Him the reset of your life, if you will. Make Him your goal. Make Him your satisfaction. Make Him the focus of all that you desire because He alone is worthy of worship. He is infinitely, eternally, majestically unique. Delight in Jesus Christ because of His infinite uniqueness. Is Christ your joy this morning? Is He alone our supreme treasure? Do we find refuge and solace and comfort in Him alone? He, because of His infinite nature, because of His eternal position exalted in the heavens, alone is worthy of our satisfaction, our joy. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul gives us a doxology of praise to remind us of the priority of worshiping Christ. A doxology to remind us that Christ is always worth worshiping. Let me give you the context in which John writes these words. It is words, these are words that come from the Apostle John. He introduces himself in verse 4, John, to the seven churches. This is John the Apostle and Disciple. We know that the Apostle John spent his later years in Asia Minor after the Emperor Domitian had died. John was released from Patmos. And from Patmos, he went back to Asia Minor where he spent the bulk of his years in Ephesus. He was something of a a pastor emeritus, an elder, if you will, alongside Timothy who was pastoring that church. He served there as that elder and may have died somewhere in the late 90s or the early aughts of the second century. The churches that he addresses here are the seven churches in Asia. They're churches that were in the region of Ephesus. They're the churches, undoubtedly, that Jesus uh, addresses in chapters 2 and 3, the churches of Ephesus and um, the church of Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are not the only seven churches in Asia Minor, but as you know that the scriptures often use the words, the number seven for completeness or totality. So these churches represent and stand for all the churches that were in that region at that time. And notice that while John wrote this letter, it was not his revelation It was God's revelation to the churches through John's pen. So he writes, but notice that it's God's revelation. Verse 1 tells us that very thing. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that is Christ, 
So the revelation begins with God the Father and it proceeds through God the Son. And this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, and by Jesus Christ. And it is mediated, made known to us through the pen of John. Verse 4 also tells us that this is not John's revelation, but God's. Notice he says, grace to you and peace. That's a very familiar greeting in the ancient churches, a greeting that the Apostle Paul used often in his letters. So John similarly uses that same phrase, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. The greeting comes not from John, the greeting The revelation comes from God himself. God is the originator of this message. In fact, this is not just a message from the Father, but it is a Trinitarian message. So notice what John says. It comes from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a reference to God the Father. We see a similar reference in chapter 4. Verse 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. This is a reference that alludes to his eternal nature. He is beyond time. He is transcendent over time. He always has, he was always existing in time past and before time began. And he will always exist out into the eternal future. But it not only emphasizes his eternality and his infinitude in relation to time, but it also emphasizes his infinitude in relation to creation. That is, he is the uncreated one. He is self-sufficient. He always has existed. There is none who has created him, but he has always existed. He exists within himself. He exists because he does and because he is. He is immutable. He is unchanging. What he is, he always has been, always will be. Says one writer, this message is from the absolute one who knows no change, no dependence on time or place, from whom comes every good and perfect gift and with whom is neither variableness nor the least shadow of turning. So this message comes from the Father. It also comes, notice the end of verse 4, from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Who are these seven spirits? The Apostle John uses that little phrase, three more times in this letter. So he uses it, for instance, in chapter 3, to the angel of the church of Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. That is Christ who has the seven spirits. What's interesting is that this is the only of those letters in chapters 2 and 3 that begins that way. The rest of them begin um, with references uh, to other attributes of Christ that he owns and has. What are these seven spirits that Christ has? Look over at chapter 4, verse 5. Out of the throne that is in heaven come flashes of lightning and of sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. So, chapter 1, there are seven spirits in front of the throne. Here, chapter 4, verse 5, there are seven lamps. And what are the lamps? He tells us, verse 5, they are the seven spirits of God. So, the seven spirits relate to the seven lamps. And we find a hint of what the lamps are in Zechariah chapter 4. An angel, verse 1, who was speaking with me, returned to me and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, and with its bowl on top of it, 
and with its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. So I see seven lamps. It's a unique phrase that's used very rarely in the Scriptures. And the angel says to him, verse 4, excuse me, he says to the angel, verse 4, what are these? And he said, the angel says, verse 5, don't you know what these are? And I said to him, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So what are the seven lamps in Zechariah? They are the spirit of God, the singular spirit of God. That number seven, again, denoting the completeness, the, the totality of the spirit of God. Those seven lamps represent the seven spirits, and I would submit to you that the seven spirits in Revelation 1, verse 4, refer to the Holy Spirit of God. That makes sense as well because this message comes from God. It comes from God the Father. We're going to see in verse 5 in just a moment, it comes from Jesus Christ, and it is... It, it would be untenable to think of it coming from anyone else except the Spirit of God. So it is, it is the Spirit of God and not an angel who also comes alongside God the Father to give this message, to give this greeting. It comes from God the Father. It comes from God the Spirit, verse 5, and it comes from Jesus Christ. This is a Trinitarian letter. This is a Trinitarian message. This is a message from God about the singular Christ. This book of Revelation is by Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus Christ. And it is designed to stimulate our worship in Jesus Christ. And to accomplish that end, in verses 5 and 6, John identifies the threefold nature of Christ a threefold work of Christ, and a singular response to Christ. Let us consider first his nature, verse 5. Worship Christ because of his nature. One commentator that I was reading this week recounted some of the great Christological chapters in Scripture. Isaiah 53, Matthew 17, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, all great chapters about our great Savior. And then he says this, But of all the chapters in the Bible which show forth our blessed Lord, none surpasses Revelation chapter 1. You want to see our Savior? You want something to worship this Christmas season? Then come to Revelation 1. And let us see our great Savior who has come. What does he say about our Savior? First of all, in verse 5, he says, He is truth. This message comes from Jesus Christ. He says, verse 5, Who is Jesus Christ? He is the faithful witness. That is to say, He is the trustworthy source of all revelation. When Jesus Christ was on earth, he gave testimony to all kinds of things. He testified about the world, John chapter 7, and the emptiness of the world. He testified repeatedly about himself. He testified about the Father. And everything he said about himself, everything he said about the Father, everything he said about the world was unerringly true and trustworthy. There is no one, nowhere else that one might go that would reveal God and His truth more fully than in the words of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He came as the supreme prophet, fulfilling Deuteronomy chapter 18. And He came to this world for this reason, to testify to the truth. Remember what He said right before He went to the cross, John chapter 18, to Pilate. Pilate says to Him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, John eighteen thirty seven. You say correctly that I am king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. 
Everyone who hear, who is of the truth hears my voice. I came to testify to the truth. What truth? The truth about me. The truth that I am the Savior. The truth that I am the hope. The one, the one in whom all people might find their satisfaction. The Israelite prophets were designed to be shepherds and prophets who would also reveal the truth. But all too often they were erring prophets leading people away from God. But Christ is the supreme prophet who can be trusted. He is faithful as a witness and as a testimony. What he says is right and true and good. Listen to what one man says. Jesus Christ is a faithful witness because he gave faithful testimony concerning all things which were to be testified to to and by him in the world. A faithful witness, because whatever he heard from the Father, he faithfully made known to his disciples. A faithful witness, because he taught the way of God in truth. Neither did he care for anyone nor regard the person of men. A faithful witness because he announced condemnation to the reprobate and salvation to the elect. A faithful witness because he confirmed by miracles the truth which he taught in words. A faithful witness because he denied not, even in death, the Father's testimony to himself. A faithful witness because he will give testimony in the day of judgment concerning the works of the good, of the, of the good and of the evil. He is, brothers and sisters, the Faithful witness. What he says is true. He is the prophet who fulfills what was prophesied in Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. In other words, I've made a promise to David. What is the promise to David? It's the promise that there would be an eternal king that would sit on David's throne for all of eternity. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. Just like... The sun is faithful, and it's going down, and it's coming up every day. God is faithful to the promise of David, and the one who will sit on David's throne is faithful and true. You can trust him. He will persist in truthfulness, just like the sun persists in its cycle. Where do you go for truth today? How about CNN? How about Fox News? How about MSNBC? How about the Fort Worth Star-Telegram? How about an upgrade from that, the Wall Street Journal? Where do you find the truth? Who's telling the truth? I don't know where I picked it up. But I've been saying for years, and I've said it probably more in the last eight months than I've said it ever. And I say it somewhat jokingly, but it's true, isn't it? The truth is out there. Trust no one. Where do you go for truth? I'll tell you where you go for truth. You go here. To this book. To the Savior of this book. There is no other truth anywhere There's no other satisfaction anywhere except in this one who is true. He is the truth. He is life. He is life. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. That's a reference that infers two truths. One of those truths that is, is that he is the first one to be resurrected from the dead. Now, there were other resurrections, but all those other resurrections were merely resuscitations. Those were all about people who eventually died again and were not resuscitated then. 
Jesus Christ is the first one who has resurrected from the dead, never to die again. He is the first to be resurrected, but he is not the last to be resurrected, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Christ first, and then everyone else. When Christ is resurrected, it's a promise to us that we also have the hope of resurrection. If Christ is not resurrected, then brothers and sisters, we're in trouble. We have no hope of resurrection without Him. And that leads us to the second facet of the truth in this phrase, He is the firstborn of the dead. It is not merely that He is first, it is that He is preeminent. It is not merely that He comes first, it is that He has an exalted position above all others who will be resurrected he is first. We saw this as we read this morning in Colossians chapter 1. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why is he the firstborn from the dead, Paul? So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He is the firstborn so that he will be preeminent above all. He is preeminent this also is John's allusion to Psalm 89 again. Notice verse 26. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And God says, verse 27, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. He's the firstborn. He's preeminent. And to say that he is the firstborn... Out of the dead is to say that he is alive and he possesses life. It is to infer that he is self-sufficient and has life within himself. It is to say that he is the resurrection and the life. It is to fulfill his promise, because I live, you also will live. And brothers and sisters, to say that he is the firstborn from the dead is also to say that he is alive and that we need to find our life and our joy in him. So Paul will say in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, he is our life, that's verse 4, and then verse 11, Christ is all and he is in all. That is, Christ is all-sufficient and he is in all of his own equally. To say that Christ is the firstborn from the dead is to remind us that there is nothing more supreme than Christ. It is to remind us that we need to find our joy, our adequacy, our delight, our satisfaction, our worship in Him alone. Many years ago now, not the greatest of theologians, Woody Allen was asked the question, what makes life worth living? He answered this, Five things. Groucho Marx, the second movement of Mozart's Jupiter Symphony, Louis Armstrong's recording of Potato Head Blues, Flaubert's novel, A Sentimental Education, and Cezanne's painting, Still Life of Apples and Pears. To which we might say, Woody, that's a swing and a miss. There's only one that makes life worth living. It is the one who is the firstborn from the dead. He is life. We are tempted, pulled, drawn by the world and by our own flesh to all kinds of things that say, I'm a worthy Christ substitute. Those things will all fail you. 
they inevitably always will all fail. I don't think I've ever seen all those idols come crashing down as hard as we have in 2020. Have you? It's been a massive failure. Everything that people have put their satisfaction in, by and large, in 2020, has been utterly destroyed. Never have we seen such rampant, out-of-control fear as we have in this year. And people have pursued all kinds of delights, and they have tried to restore all of their vain treasures, and it has been just that, vanity. Let me paraphrase John Piper. We cannot go on with business as usual, doing our work, making our money, giving our charitable donations, eating, sleeping, and going to church. It is time for radical reevaluation and redirection. Our passion in life must be to be pure, holy, loving, and sold out to Christ supremely and alone. He is life. Is he our life? That's the question. He is life. There's a third aspect to his nature that John draws attention to in these verses, and that is that he is king, firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the preeminent king, the king who is over every other aspirant to the throne. He is the king who cannot be overthrown. All manner of men seek a similar kind of authority as Christ's authority, but no one has Christ's authority. As one writer has noted, he is the king of heaven, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, the king of the ages, the king of glory, the king of saints, and the king of kings. He is the mighty prince of the kings of the earth. Friends, that ought to give us a rousing amen. Amen. (laughs) He is king. He is king. He is a king that does not receive his authority from anyone else. When Satan comes to him and says, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. What does the king of kings say? He has no need of Satan. He is the king who is above all. And what Satan offers Jesus through rebellion to the Father, Jesus accomplishes through submission to the Father. Again, John is alluding to to Psalm 89 as a fulfillment of that passage. I will make him, verse 27, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The highest not just today, The highest, not just yesterday, but the highest for all of eternity. He is the preeminent king, the sovereign king, the king who will always keep us. In fact, notice what else Psalm 89 says. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him So I will establish his descendants forever as his throne as the days of heaven. It is safe in the kingdom of Christ. There's no defeat in the kingdom of Christ. There's no defeat of the kingdom of Christ. And there is no defeat for those who are in the kingdom of Christ. What John says in this verse is a prelude to his calling us to worship Christ in verse 6. These are fitting reasons to worship Christ. These are fitting reasons to be joyful and happy always. But brothers and sisters, these are also words of comfort. 
In a world where truth is suppressed and truth is hard to determine, in a world where there's only death and only dying, and in a world where there is no eternal life, and in a world where there are so many incompetent and incapable kings, here we have one worth worshiping. Here is a Lord of truth and life and sovereignty who is given to be our rest and our peace. Remember the advent of Christ? Virtually the very first thing that was said about the new King Jesus was peace on earth. He's king and he's coming with peace. And one of the last public declarations about this incarnated God, Jesus Christ, was this in Luke 19. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. He's king and he's coming to bring peace. And one of the very last things Jesus said to the disciples, Luke 24, was peace be to you. No, brothers and sisters, he's king, sovereign, and he gives peace. If you are suffering and despairing and grieving and provoked, you have only one place to go, and it is the one who is true and life and king. Worship Christ because of his nature. Worship Christ because of his work. He points not only to who Jesus is, but he also points to what Jesus does. And the first thing he draws attention to in verse 5 is that he loves us to him. And there he's starting to lead us in anticipation of worship that he'll give at the end of verse 6. To him who loves us. What do you notice about the verb there? Loves. It's a present tense. It would be true to say he loved us, for God has loved us in the eternal past. And in fact, he will use the past tense in just a moment when he says, and released us. That was in the past. But he not only has loved us in the past... He loves us now in the present, still, forever. And notice the nature of this love. It is a personal love. He loves us. Us who? Us who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. Us who have been adopted into the family of God. Us who are His children. Us who are His redeemed. Us who have been intimately acquainted with Him. He knows us intimately and is committed to us in His love for us. His love is manifested in His incarnation. His love is manifested at the cross His love is manifested in His eternal rule over us. And brothers and sisters, there's no way for us to quantify this love that He has for us. And yet the Scriptures implore us, exhort us to attempt to understand this love. Listen to Paul's benediction in the middle of Ephesians So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love, your, your, your rootedness in God and your being grounded in God is through love. That you might be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. I want you to know something you can't know. (laughs) You have no mind to grasp on this earth the length and the magnitude, the depth, the wonder of the love of God. But I want you to know that love. Be secure in that love. Be kept in that love. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, you can be, should be, must be secure in His love for you. He loves you. Where else are you going to find that in this world? He loves you. They permanent, unending, unceasing, infinite love. He loves us. He has freed us. Verse 5, He has released us from our sins by His blood. There's liberty in Jesus Christ. There's freedom in Christ. That's what that word release means. But that freedom and liberty are not to do whatever we want. That freedom and liberty are, are from what we used to want to do to something that we were never able to do before. We have been released from sin that bound us, tied us, and shackled us. Remember what those days were like? And now you are free to glorify, exalt, delight in God. Something has been undone. And what has been undone is sin. And this, this is Romans 6 and 7 and 8. We are free. It's a finished act. Christ does not need to do anything more to liberate us. That work is done. Listen carefully. The chains are gone. Better. My chains are gone if I'm in Christ. He has set me free. How? By a cost I don't have a mind to understand. By His blood. Death was required for our release. And He paid that. Brothers, sisters, this is the love of God. The love of God is is currently being showered on us And part of that showering of His love is by His act at the cross to release us from sin and the provision of the Spirit for us to walk free from sin. He loves us. He has freed us. He has commissioned us, verse 6, and He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. He's not only liberated us, He has granted something to us. Notice that He says not only are we placed into the kingdom, but He has made us a kingdom. We are corporately us, a corporate entity kingdom. It's not just a place to reside. It's something that we are. We are His kingdom. And we are not alone in that kingdom. We are with a myriad of other believers in Christ. We know that those who were receiving these letters were, several of these churches, a persecuted lot how must it have encouraged them to understand that they're, they're part of this massive entity that makes up one divine kingdom of God? Chapter 5, verse 11, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. I'm not alone. I'm part of this massive kingdom of of Christ that belongs to Him. And not only are we part of this massive entity of redeemed people, but we are also, verse 6, priests. Corporately, a kingdom. Individually, priests. 
In the Old Testament, the priest's access to God, the, the believer's access to God was through the priest only. In the New Testament, the believer himself becomes a priest. That is, the believer himself has access to God. The believer himself can go to the throne of God. And the believer himself, every believer, has a ministry within the kingdom of God. This is a great truth, one of the great truths that was recovered at the Reformation. We, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, brother and sister. If you're in Christ, you have a ministry because you're part of the priesthood of God. But even in this, Christ is preeminent. Do you notice how John says this? Look at it. Priests, he has made us a kingdom. And he has made us priests to his God and Father. Now, is God the Father our God and our Father? Yes. In fact, that's the very thing that Jesus emphasized to Mary in the garden after the resurrection. Behold, I go to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. But John to elevate the preeminence of Christ reminds us that that He supremely belongs to God and is connected to God. And our connection to God comes through Him. We are priests to the One who gets us to God the Father. We are His We are connected to His God and Father. Our access to God is through Him alone. In fact, notice the beginning of that verse. He has made us. He's accomplished this. It's not our work. It's not our position. It's not our authority. It's not our preeminence. It's not our goodness. It's not our work. Am I making... A mountain out of a molehill? I mean, I'm 40 minutes into a sermon and I've made it a verse and a half. Flip over to chapter 5. Now John is seeing in heaven and Christ takes the book. Verse 8. The four living creatures, the 24 elders... Don't know who the 24 elders are. It is reasonable to suppose that they represent the church of Jesus Christ. All those, the four living creatures, all the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seal, For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Am I making too much out of this? No, brothers. This is one of the eternal songs of heaven this work of Christ. This is no insignificant reality. And do you notice how the song ends? End of verse 10. And they will reign upon the earth. It's a position being in Christ's kingdom, being Christ's kingdom and being a priest in that kingdom is a position of authority and rulership. It is to say, brothers and sisters, in Christ we do not lose. In Christ there is no loss. In Christ there is only victory and joy. And I can say that in 2020. And it is true. And it will always be true that there is victory in Christ. 
He's reminded us of the threefold nature of Christ. He's reminded us of a threefold work of Christ. How do you respond? Only one way to respond, brothers. Worship Christ. This has all been designed to lead us to the culmination at the end of verse 6. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. To Him, all worship is ascribed. Only He gets worship. Only Christ is exalted. When mankind was created, we were created to worship Him. And very quickly, in Adam, because of Adam, all men sin, turning away from worshiping God to worshiping anything but God. And Christ in the cross has drawn a people to Himself so that we can worship Him eternally and permanently to glorify Him, to reveal Him, to live for Him above all things. As one writer has said, He has made the kingdom, so dominion over that kingdom belongs to Him. He loves and He frees So those who are loved and freed, give Him glory. And at the end of this, what does He say? Verse 6, Amen. That's a word that means true. It is a word that is an affirmation of assent. It is so, and I believe it and affirm it. Is this Doxology of praise and worship, your praise and your worship today. Do you glorify Him? Do you live for Him? Do you long for Him? Do you delight in Him? Or are you tantalized by the trinkets of the world that will always, ultimately disappoint? Listen to one writer. Are you bored with God? Do you find other things more interesting than he is? Things like television, pornography, and video games? This verse and this chapter and this book and this Bible exist to convince you that God is infinitely more interesting than TV, porn, and video games. You were made to know God. You were made not to fritter your life away. He came He loves us. He released us. He made us a kingdom of priests. It is time to worship Him. To find our satisfaction in Him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that's your heartbeat. You're already there. You just need a little redirection in 2020 and 2021. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need a massive redirection. And you need to hear that there's only one thing that will ever satisfy you. And you must turn away from everything else you've been chasing and look to Him who is your satisfaction. Look to Him who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You must trust Him alone for your salvation. He has come. He is king. Let us come and worship him. Father, we thank you for this reminder of our Savior. Thank you, Father, for this season when even secularly we're invited to come and remember Christ the King. Might our delight this morning be in him. Might we learn to treasure Him. Might we be satisfied in Him, the One who has come, the One who is King. In His name we pray. Amen.